Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes the Old Testament is violent. I'm sure you've noticed that before, and perhaps some of you thought that as we read our text from Judges 3. After all, when it comes to violence, the story of Ehud doesn't spare us any of the gory details. In fact, seems to focus on them. No, I still remember my dad reading the story around the dinner table when I was a young boy, and I can still see my two older sisters shuddering in disgust when Ehud's sword disappeared into Eglon. Maybe some of you did as well as we read the story this morning. And so we might wonder, why is this in the Bible? You know, why did God lead Ehud to strike down King Eglon in this way? And why did the Holy Spirit inspire the story in this way? Well, those are good questions to ask. As we hope to see this morning, this text is a small story that connects with the larger story of the Bible. It helps us to understand what God is doing in saving his people throughout history. And it connects with other themes in the Bible, such as kingship, service, sacrifice, and rest. And above all, it points us to the great work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why I've also summarized the message this morning under the following theme and points. The Lord raises up a Savior who strikes our enemy in the very center of his selfishness. We'll look at three things, the selfish king, the striking savior, and the satisfying rest. Now, our text begins with that oft-repeated phrase throughout the book of Judges, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You know, they'd just gone through a period of 40 years of rest after Othniel's victory, but there arose a new generation that did not know the Lord. And again, when someone does not know the Lord, they will pursue a life of sin. Well, if we know the Lord, then we will also know that Israel is going to face consequences for their unrepentant sin. And there were painful consequences. Verse 12 says, And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. And just in case there's any doubt about why this happened, verse 12 repeats for emphasis, this happened because Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now listen to what Eglon then did. King Eglon gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now, I want us to see that three things stand out in those verses I just read. The first thing that stands out is the nations that are involved. We have the Moabites and the Ammonites. They were both descendants of Lot through Lot's daughters. And they are symbols of the perversion that arose through the city of Sodom. And if these nations are ruling over Israel, God is waking his people up to the fact that 
something is terribly wrong in Israel. Not only that, but there was Amalek, the sworn enemy of the Israelites. They first attacked Israel as Israel journeyed from Egypt to Canaan. Because of their vicious attack of Israel, trying to wipe out Israel, God declared Amalek under the man of destruction. But here we see Amalek joining Israel, or joining Moab and Ammon, defeating Israel. And here again, God is waking his people up. Something is wrong. You are serving other gods, and these are the consequences. Sometimes it's a wake-up call we need in our own lives when we slide into sin. God would much rather discipline us than have us live in sin. The next thing that stands out here is that King Eglon and his forces defeat Israel, and it says they took possession of the city of Palms. What was the city of Palms? The city of Palms most likely refers to Jericho or the very, at very least, the area right around Jericho. And that is significant. Jericho was the first city that Israel had defeated in its conquest of the land. It not only had a strategic military location, it was a symbol of human strength. And so with Eglon taking control of this location, it represents a reversal of the conquest We can say even the exodus for Israel by their sin had given their enemies a stronghold in the land again. And now they were serving a pagan king just like they had done in Egypt. Now the last thing that stands out, this is the last thing that stands out. They're serving Eglon for 18 years. See, by their sin, Israel gave their enemies a stronghold in the land. And now the entire nation was under this painful slavery to this king. That kind of reminds you of sin, doesn't it? If you give the devil a stronghold in your life, soon your entire life will become enslaved to that sin. It's one reason why Scripture warns about giving the devil a foothold in your life and in your heart. You can be sure that these were 18 bitter years for Israel. What kind of king was King Eglon? Well, King Eglon was a king who served himself. He was only looking out for number one. Now, in his mind, kingship was not about serving the people under his authority, Kingship was about making the people under his authority serve himself. And you can be sure that Israel felt the pain of living under this selfish king. Well, the text focuses on King Eglon's size. Verse 17 simply states, Eglon was a very fat man. And then we get a gruesome, up-close look at this when the sword goes into Eglon. It says the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. Ehud's sword was a cubit in length, about 15 to 18 inches long, and it, it just disappeared. Now, why does our text emphasize Eglon's size? Well, it's teaching us something about the character of Eglon. 
And here's where we need to take off our, our 21st century reading glasses and view this episode through the lens of someone living in ancient Israel. Remember, this was a society that, that lived off the produce of the land. They didn't exactly have fast food restaurants in every corner of their cities. Right? Their food wasn't packed full of sugar as so much of our food is today. Think of this in the ancient world. If you wanted to grow the size of King Eglon, you had to work extremely hard to get there. And if you lived under Eglon's reign, you did not want to be his royal chef. Because if you were, you were up at 3 a.m., and you're busy making first breakfast, second breakfast, third breakfast, and 11Zs. And if your food doesn't meet with the approval of His Royal Highness's taste buds, it might just be off with your head. Look at how His servants act later on in the story when they discover the doors of the chamber were locked. They're terrified, right? They're terrified of this king. They are slaves of this king, and you better not make him angry. Think also of this tribute that Israel had to bring King Eglon. The text doesn't give us many details, but it may have gone to one place, the King Eglon Enlargement Fund. And you know, in all seriousness, when I think of King Eglon, I can't help but think of someone like Jabba the Hutt. If you don't know who Jabba the Hutt is, then later on, ask somebody who's 30 years older than you are. He's selfish, he's loud, he's grotesque, and people are afraid of him. This is your king, O Israel. You rejected God as your king, and so now this is the king you get. Kind of reminds you of the fall into sin, doesn't it? Israel had the Lord as their good and generous king. They rejected him. Now they have a selfish king who holds them in fear. That's what we did in the Garden of Eden. We had the best king, almighty God, who's good, who's generous, who is loving. But by our foolishness, we rejected him in our sin, in our rebellion. And instead of finding freedom, we became enslaved to the worst king of all, the devil. And that is a bitter, bitter slavery. For the devil is even more selfish than King Eglon. He doesn't care for you at all. He's entirely self-serving. And he holds his subjects in fear. And when he tempts you with evil desires, he just wants to keep you enslaved to himself. That's the king we gained through our fall into sin. And that's why we need to be rescued. And this picture of a selfish king in our text also gives us a picture of our, our own sinful nature. See, God created us in his own image. So we were meant to rule as 
good kings and queens upon the earth. And by our good rule, we would be loving and we would be serving and we would be self-sacrificial. We would benefit all creation. We would benefit everyone around us. The fall into sin warped that picture completely. We became entirely selfish. It's at the heart of our sinful nature. Self-centeredness. It's a default mode of our hearts. Instead of living as servant kings and queens, we became selfish kings and queens. It's completely opposite how God made us. And contrary to that beautiful image of who God, our King, is. So here was Israel, enslaved to Eglon. That meant they could not serve the Lord as they ought to. Actually, the, the language in our text has strong religious overtones. The tribute Israel brought is the same word used for the offerings that were brought to the Lord in, in, the, in the worship to God. The language of bringing the tribute near to Eglon is the same language used when people brought near their gifts to the Lord. So worship of Israel to Yahweh was being cut off. But little did Eglon know that he himself was about to be the sacrifice. You see, the name Eglon means young bull. Here we have the fattened calf, and he is about to be slaughtered for his selfishness. That brings us to our next point. Now, in their oppression, the people cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up for them a deliverer or a savior, Ehud. That's a delightful little detail. God did not cast off his people in their sin, right? He heard their cries for help. That's encouraging when you struggle with sin as well, isn't it? Cry out to the Lord. He hears us as we call to him in repentance and faith does not cast us off. Now, I've called the second point uh, the striking Savior. And I'm using the word striking in in two different senses. Obviously, it can refer to Ehud striking Eglon with a sword. But I'm also using the word striking in the sense of surprising. We hope to see both of these senses throughout this narrative. The first thing that's striking or surprising about Ehud in our text is, his, is that he's left-handed. Now, what's interesting is that the text says he is a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And if you recall from Genesis, Benjamin means son of my right hand. The text does not actually state he was left-handed, but he was restricted in his right hand. So he was a Benjaminite, a son of my right hand, who was restricted in his right hand. He was left-handed. One would not expect the one who is the son of my right hand to be left-handed, but he was. The element of surprise starts to build. Now that phrase, a man restricted in his right hand, may refer to one of two things. It might be just a way of saying he was left-handed. However, what is more likely is that that Ehud was a trained warrior with his left hand, even if he was naturally right-handed. See, the Benjaminites were regarded as fierce warriors, as it was. But they were also known for 
their ability to use their left hands in battle. Judges 20 refers to 700 chosen fighting men of Benjamin who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So it appears that they trained this way. You see, if you restrict the use of your right hand, force yourself to use your left hand, you can become proficient with your left hand, and that gives you a serious advantage in warfare as it does Ehud in our text. So Israel called in the south paw Ehud and chose him to bring the tribute to Eglon. One thing to note also is this, this is probably not the first time Ehud went to Eglon. Remember, Israel served Eglon 18 years. Ehud probably brought tribute multiple times. That's also probably why Eglon was willing to give Ehud a private meeting in our text. He probably knew Ehud's face quite well. That would also give Ehud time to plan his attack and escape. And so on this particular trip, Ehud came prepared. He made a double-edged sword 15, 18 inches long. He bound it on his right thigh under his clothing. Most guards would expect a weapon to be on the left side for a right-handed man. In any case, Ehud was at the head of a cohort of people who brought this tribute to Eglon. And we know what King Eglon doesn't. Ehud has a surprise waiting for him. And after the tribute is delivered, Ehud sent the cohort away. And it says, Ehud himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal, close to the city of Palms. The idols of Gilgal probably refer to Moabite idols set up at Gilgal, making the beginning of Moabite, marking the beginning of Moabite territory. At the edge of this territory, Ehud turned around, returned to Eglon. As he came before him, he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Eglon, in his blindness, called out silence. His attendants went out from his presence. So there they were, alone together. Ehud said again, I have a message from God for you. And as Eglon stood up, Ehud struck Eglon in the very symbol of of his selfishness. And Eglon fell down dead. His glory was now his shame. He suffered the curse God placed on the seat of the serpent in Genesis 3. He's licking the dust. And this is another reason why I titled this second point, The Striking Savior. God said in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would strike the head of the serpent. And Ehud, in Judges 3, strikes the head, or king, of God's enemies. It was a surprise attack that did Eglon in. That's how God often works throughout history to save his people. He uses the element of surprise. And that's so clear in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was the ultimate seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head, the devil, yet he was a surprising Savior. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. 
He had no beauty that we would desire him. He was a man from whom men hid their faces. He grew up in humble Galilee. He swung a hammer most of his life. And Jesus Christ defeated our enemy who held us in slavery in the most surprising way. Christ defeated the devil by dying on the cross. It's the most striking victory ever made. Christ was victorious in his defeat. And this is something Satan simply did not understand. The devil did not get the point of this story here of Ehud and Eglon. You know, when we read the story, we might be shocked by its violence. And the lesson Satan may have taken away from this event was that violently putting to death your enemy is a pathway to victory. What is the one reason the Old Testament is often violent? It's because God Almighty was drawing Satan into a trap. You see, Satan, the devil, ensured that Jesus would be murdered on the cross in a most gruesome way. By doing this, he was ensuring his own defeat. See, what's this story about Eglon and Ehud all about? It's not that Eglon's violent death was his downfall. It's that his selfishness, his pride, his shameful glory was his downfall. And the sword in his belly drives that point home. It's the same thing with the devil. Satan's own pride, his own hatred, his selfishness, his own desire for murder was his defeat. You want to be a murderer, Satan? You want to murder Christ? Then that's going to be your downfall. For by murdering the Christ, you made him king. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You see, Jesus Christ, he's a completely different king than both Eglon and the devil. Completely different. He is in no way selfish or self-serving but he serves others. Think about the selflessness of Jesus Christ. As God's eternal Son, glorious, almighty, he is a perfect image of God, and so he came to this earth as the servant king. And how different he was in Eglon, he taught his disciples in Mark 10. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, think of Eglon, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would become great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was the life of Jesus Christ. Think of what he did immediately after his baptism, right? At his baptism, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. God 
uh, was proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ. He was also appointing to him as prophet, priest, and king. But as, as king, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill that role. And think of what the newly anointed King Jesus Christ did right after his baptism. He went into the desert to be tempted by the devil. There he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was willing to give up food for all that time. Why did he do that? He did it to serve us. He did it to save us. He did it to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. He did it to ransom us from the devil. Do you think someone like King Eglon would be willing to do that? Not on your life. Never. And Christ kept this servant attitude all the way to the cross. There he ransomed us from Satan, ransomed us from death. He paid for all of our sins and made us his own. That's the king we serve. Christ as king now uses a double-edged sword as well. He uses the sword of the word to defeat Satan's kingdom. Scripture says the sword of the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, also the one uh, Ehud used. Hebrews 4 says that that sword pierces to the division of our souls and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, Christ in heaven as king, he uses that sword of the word of God, that double-edged sword, to convict us of our own sin, of our own selfishness. He calls us now to turn away from it, turn away from selfishness, turn away from pride, to turn to him for forgiveness. And he gives us this forgiveness through the cross. That brings us to our last point. Now, after the gruesome death of Eglon, Ehud, with ninja-like precision, secretly escaped out of Eglon's inner ch- upper chamber. As he left, he locked the doors behind him, and this ensured himself a lengthy getaway. The servants of Eglon were so afraid, they waited outside that door until they were embarrassed. Who knows how long they waited? But in the turmoil... Ehud could arrive back in Ephraim. He blew the trumpet to rally the troops around himself, and he declared, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies into your hand. People went down with him. They seized the fords of the Jordan. The Moabite army could not escape the land, and they routed them. And that, too, gives us a picture of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ won the definitive battle over our enemies at the cross. We share in that victory through the Spirit by faith. And now Christ calls us into the battle. And we join Christ in this battle. Christ is calling you to fight this fight. For the sermon we sang from Psalm 110, a song about Christ, but it also says about God's people, your people We'll be wholly glad and willing when you to your great battle summon them. Your youth will come as dew and day is dawning, arrayed in holiness are your young men. 
You are being summoned by Christ to join Him in this fight. Are you willing? You young men, you young women, are you willing? Are you presenting yourself to your Savior as those who will fight against sin, who will fight against uh, Satan? And that fight begins in our own hearts. We have something of that selfish, greedy heart as King Eglon. We fight this fight also in the way that Jesus Christ did by laying down our lives for others. It's also how the kingdom of Christ advances in this world as His people lay down their lives in service of their King. Christ helps us here too as those united with Him in His death Christ has dealt a death blow to our old nature. Our old sinful, selfish self was put to death when Christ died so that we might live a new life. So that we would be new people, willing to serve others, willing to serve God. Our text ends by saying that the land enjoyed rest for 80 years. Rest, beautiful rest that they did not get under Eglon. And 80 years, two full generations. Was doing evil in the sight of the Lord worth it for Israel? Not at all. 18 years of hard service. But through God's Savior, they enjoyed rest. Beautiful, satisfying rest. Isn't that what we all want? It's what our Savior offers. It's also why we should be eager to join Christ in this battle. Fight against sin, fight against wickedness. One day, that rest will be enjoyed in full. The devil will no longer attack us. Our hearts will be free from selfishness forever. Amen. Let's now respond by singing together hymn 31, stanzas 1 and 2.